Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 12.01 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is the 15th day of May, 2023. And I'm pretty much in trouble because of Mother's Day, but I won't get into that one. This is episode 726 of Bitcoin and Comfrey. That's right. We're going to do a whole bunch about Comfrey. And this is something that I wanted to do last week, but as I noted in one of the other shows last week, it just wasn't going to happen because there was some other stuff that I needed to gather up. Because once you go down the comfrey rabbit hole, and we're going to be talking about a plant, comfrey, C-O-M-F-R-E-Y, comfrey. We're going to talk all about it today. That's not going to be the only thing that we do. Uh, we'll do a regular market update. I got uh, oh, something about El Salvador and U.S. senators are getting their panties in a snit about something going on down there, and they want to know more. I got, oh, God, Ethereum network suffers finality issues. We'll, we'll talk about that. That caused some issues. There's this new thing called Nutminer. I got Fold Bitcoin Rewards app going somewhere. I got some snort stuff. There is, um, oh, Virgil Griffith, uh, one of the Ethereum developers who got in trouble because of his, you know, hanging out in North Korea and all that kind of stuff. Uh, He's back in the news. MicroStrategy's doing stuff. And we'll talk a little bit about $31 trillion in debt. Right. But let's talk about the things that we can control. Okay. What can we control? It's springtime. You can control planting things. (laughs) You can control making compost. You can control a bunch of stuff. If you got a house and you're not using that house, specifically the yard, to grow items of value, then you're kind of missing out. Yes, none of us have time. Some of us have more time and less intelligence and or not intelligence eh, let's say experience in growing some people will claim they've got a black thumb that they kill everything they see and that's on just it's just it's a myth it's a myth generally speaking when somebody plants a plant in the ground and it dies a week later it's just because you forgot to water it it's not because or or you know your soil is like a pH of three or a pH of like, you know, eight and a half. And what you planted there just isn't, isn't going to do well. Okay. Um, but most, most of the time it's not that, you know, most of the time soils aren't that extreme, right? So honestly, it really, a lot of it boils down to you put it in the wrong place or you didn't and, and, or, 
you didn't water it, especially during those those transplant times. You know, like you plant a tomato plant and just like leave it for three days. No, man, no, you can't do it like that. But one of the easiest plants in the world to grow is comfrey. One of the most valuable plants that you'll ever have on your property is comfrey. One of the things that has the most uses in your yard and for you as a human being is what? Yeah, you know, you guessed it, comfrey. This stuff is, this plant has become one of my all-time favorite top five plants. Some people will call them, you know, like if you're a permaculturist, they'll go, oh, it's my top five permaculture plant. Yeah, comfrey generally ends up being on a list, you know, of the top 10 permaculture plants or the top five regenerative agriculture plants or you know, things like that, but you don't have to couch it in terms of regenerative ag or permaculture. It's just a plant. It just so happens that this thing is incredible. It's absolutely incredible when it comes to all the things that it can do for you and for your soil, for your compost, for everything. And we're going to get all into it. So, what is comfrey? Okay, fair enough. That's a good question. There's a bit of history about comfrey, what it is, where it comes from, how long we've been using it, and we've been using it for a very long time. But the simple answer to what comfrey is, we'll start here. It's a member of the borage family. <laughs> okay, so that's not helpful. What the hell is borage? Uh, lots of people have heard of borage, but probably more often than not, most people have not heard of borage. And it's not, it's just, I needed a place to start. Where does comfrey come from? Well, the, the overarching family of plants is borage. And there's a lot of history about borage itself. In fact, borage is a completely different show. I can do a completely different show on borage, and I would if I had direct experience with borage as a plant and what it does. So for now, because I, you know, one of these days I'll, I'll start working with borage too. It's almost inevitable because once you start understanding that each and each individual plant is its own thing, you're sort of getting to know it as a person and what its abilities are. Actually, yeah, like you're like an employee. You hire a new guy. I came with all, you know, came with the CV, came with the, you know, the resume and the cover letter and the references and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's sort of the same way with a plant. But it's not until you start really working with a, a particular plant that you come to know exactly what it is that it can do and what it is that it cannot do. What it is that it's really good at and what it sucks at. And those times when some, you know, employee might be really good at doing something, but you just don't like the way he or she does it. Well, plants are in comfrey in particular is, well, it definitely falls into that. So, but borage goes back in time, just like comfrey and, and what goes on with comfrey has definitely gone, you know, go, goes back into time. Now, there's this dude 
that comes up every once in a while. Sto- the Stoics will talk about it. You know, the people that read the Stoics will talk about it. But this guy's name is Pliny the Elder. I love that name, Pliny the Elder. And there's this other, co- this other dude called Dioscorides. I think that's how you pronounce it. And both of them said that Borage was the Nepenthe, which is mentioned in Homer. All right, so Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. And, you know, he's, I think they call him the Bard. But he's the, he's the guy that wrote about the Trojan War and uh, Odysseus's tra- uh, uh, travels on, on the boat as Odysseus bailed out and said, you know what, you can take your Trojan War and you can go pound sand. I'm, I'm taking my army and we're, we're getting the hell out of here. And that's where the Odyssey comes from. But Homer mentioned it as that, well, that borage when mixed with wine causes forgetfulness. So even though that's not, that's not directly medicinal, right? Or is it? You know, I mean, it's sort of where you're talking about Pliny the Elder. These guys go back like to like before Christ or the before common era. And they were talking about that they noticed that this plant does certain things when applied a certain way. And comfrey is no different. Now, the Latin term for the, especially the comfrey that, that I use is called Symphytum uplandicum. And it is a naturally occurring hybrid of two wild species of comfrey, right? Now, that would be Symphytum officinale, and it's a, and pr- something called prickly comfrey, also known as Symphytum aspirum. Now, here's the thing, and we want to watch out for this. The Symphytum uplandicum, or the comfrey that I have always worked with, right, is essentially sterile. It doesn't produce seed. And because it doesn't produce seed, it's not invasive up to a point. We'll, we'll get to that. Just keep that in mind. Because most people will say, oh my God, you've got comfrey in your yard. It's going to spread everywhere. Well, yeah. If you've got Symphytum, Symphytum officinalis, the actual wild type of Russian comfrey, because that's sort of where this stuff comes from, the, you know, from Russia and Eastern Europe. Yeah, it spreads like wildfire. And if you've got it in your yard, you're, A, you're never going to get rid of it. But B, if you don't have it in your yard and you're listening to me tell you about all the th- cool things that comfrey does, you absolutely must understand just how invasive it is when you get the wrong type or strain of comfrey. Now, I'll tell you which ones to get, but the officinalis, the official, I guess that's, that's sort of Latin for official or like the, what, what the go-to strain, that's the one that produces seed. You do not want that one because it will spread like wildfire throughout everything, all right? And it'll start choking shit out. And you don't want that, okay? I'm not sending you, I don't want to send you on a suicide mission when it comes to comfrey. This is supposed to work for you, not against you. Okay, so there was this dude back in the day, Henry Doubleday. How far back in the day? He lived from 1810 to 1902. And he was the guy that first championed Symphytum 
Uplandicum. Now the Uplandicum strain is the sterile strain. It doesn't produce seeds, so therefore it cannot spread that way. And it's very easily contained. However, again, once you put comfrey somewhere, it's going to stay there forever because it's a perennial. We'll, we'll get to more of that. I just want to make sure that you're not planting the officinalis. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right, so Henry Doubleday, he was the guy that first started. He first found it. I guess he was on a trip to Eastern you know, Russia or uh, Western Russia, Eastern Europe, and you know, started, I don't know, maybe he was here in Lord. There's not a whole lot written about Henry Doubleday that I can find just yet. <clears throat> but whatever reason, he picks up this plant and he brings it back to jolly old England where he wants to find out more about this thing. And he did so. And he found out more and more and more. And then he, he died. But before he died, or actually right after he died, there was a guy and he was uh, a guy named Lawrence D. Hills. I, he was working with Doubleday. I guess it was not after he died. Before he died, he was working with Doubleday, right? And he got the bug. He got the comfrey bug. And he carried on Henry Doubleday's work. And what he did in 1950, so here we are, we're up to 1950. He established a comfrey research program in the village of, wait for it, Bocking, which is near Braintree in the United Kingdom. Now, for those who know a little bit about comfrey or have listened to my show and I talk about comfrey, I've said the word Bocking 4 and Bocking 14. You're about to find out exactly where that comes from. So anyway, he establishes this research program in the village of Bocking, which is an English village. And there he tried... 21 different strains of comfrey. And each one of the strains was named like Bocking 1, Bocking 2, Bocking 4, Bocking 14, Bocking 18. But only the only two that anybody knows a damn thing about is Bocking 4 and Bocking 14. Right? So, but that's where it comes from. So when somebody says Bocking 14 comfrey, they're talking about a strain that Lawrence D. Hills was able to get after he trialed all these different strains in the 1950s through the 1960s in this village of Bocking. So that's where that name comes from. Now, again, both all of the ones that he was trialing, as far as I can tell, were all sterile. They produced no seeds. And that was very, very important to them because it can be so invasive if you use what? Symphytum officinalis. That's the one that goes to seed. And this thing flowers profusely. And in fact, it flowers all year long. That's one of the reasons why it, it, it just, it can produce seed all the time. And we'll, we'll talk about cuttings and stuff, but I've, I've, I've cut you know, several of my old uh, comfrey plants down when they were flowering. And I was like, I, when I first started working with it, I figured, well, okay, well that, this is the way, not that I was worried about the flower spreading seeds. I was worried about the flowering taking a lot of energy from the actual plant itself. And I wanted it to spread because I want the leaf mass and we'll talk about why. But I was thinking that if I could cut down the flowering parts, 
that that would be it, that it wouldn't flower again. Oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter. That thing is going to flower all year long. So I finally just started leaving the flower bolts or, you know, what the, the stalk with the flowers comes right out of the center and is taller than everything else. And then I noticed after all those flowers would dry up and start looking crinkly, of course, they're not producing seed because I'm, I was using balking four to be very specific about what I was using. Um, another stalk would grow, another flowering stalk would grow, and then it would flower, and then a third, and then a fourth. And it, there was like no difference in how many flowers this thing put out each stalk. They were all the same, and it flowered profusely, and they're very pretty little purple magenta to, you know, I don't know, like coral color flowers. They're beautiful little bell-shaped flowers on these bracts, which is, well, we won't get into that, but it's, it's pretty. That's the whole thing. One of the cool things about this plant is that, yeah, it does all this stuff that I'm about to tell you about, but it's a good-looking plant. It's a really good-looking plant. It looks really good in flower garden, well, in like, uh, I don't know, like mass plantings in front of your house. And if you want something that you don't really have to take care of, save just to water it, this, this is your guy. And it has these beautiful flowers and it flowers continuously throughout the year. So that was the reason that they were using and they were trying to find the sterile strain of this plant was because of the profuse flowering and seeding ability that this plant has. And you know, they ended up with Bocking 14 and Bocking 4. And there's some differences between them. But the, the big thing is, is that going back to like mass plantings and the, this plant in general, is that it's perennial. What does that mean? It means it comes back every year. Now, some plants are annuals, like daisies, right? They, they grow from seed, they grow through the season, they put out a flower, they use the rest of the season to develop seeds after, that, after all the little parts of that flower have been fertilized by bees, wasps, and ladybugs, and what else, whatever else. <clears throat> and then the plant dies, the whole thing dries, all the seeds dry, and then those seeds come back the next year if they're planted. Now, that's an annual. Then there's like biennials, right? There's several different types of, of biennials. Radishes are a biennial, right? They'll, they'll produce a root and a bunch of leaves the first year, but generally you don't see the second year because you're planting radishes for food, so you pull them and you eat them. So you never really see the second year. In the second year, what happens is that the radish, being a biennial, establishes itself and a big old tuber-looking thing, the radish, in the ground the first year. Second year, it sends up a flowering stalk and it makes seeds. And then it dies, the seeds dry out, and if you plant those seeds again, you get new radishes. But that's a biennial. Then there are perennials. Some perennials... I don't think should be called perennials because they live for five years and then they die. But then we have a perennial and think of a pecan tree or a walnut tree or a pine tree. That's a perennial, right? It's all, it, it just, it always lives, but the trees aren't, I don't think they're technically called perennials. Those are trees. I'm talking more like plants, right? A plant. 
And while a tree clearly is a plant, it's not this kind of plant. You know, it's not like a tulip bulb or a comfrey root or whatever, right? It's different. But the point with some things that are called perennials is that sometimes they, if they live longer than like two years, technically they're a perennial, even if they die in the fifth year because they just give up the ghost and that's just the way that whatever plant that that is, that's the way it works, right? It's just part of, the, part of its genetics, part of its habit. Comfrey is forever. And that's why I say wherever it is that you choose to plant comfrey, you need to make sure that you're good with that being its final resting place and that you're never going to get rid of it ever. You know, it's not something that can be transplanted because of the root system. And we'll get it. We'll, I'll talk more about why that is so in a minute. But you have to understand at this point, you don't get rid of this plant, right? It's there forever. So you've got to be very judicious about where you're putting it and for what reasons you're putting it there. Now, in the United States, we have this thing called the USDA zone map. All right. United States Department of Agriculture has always refined this map. And that's where you see like on plants, it'll say USD zone six. So if you're in zone six, like I am, even though I'm all the way up here in eastern Washington, I'm, I, I'm literally in the same USD zone as I was when I lived in Canyon, Texas. Amazing, isn't it? That's the way the zones work. OK, so if it grows in USDA zone six, and you're in a state with a USD where that zone comes through, if you move to any other state and it's got a zone six, that plant will grow there. You don't really have to worry about why or, or how, just that it does. And that's one of the reasons why the USDA zone map is so very, very helpful when you're planting stuff. And that's why I say that this thing is hardy from USDA zones four through eight. So it can get really cold and it can live through some hot stuff like four. I don't know where USDA four is. I'm going to say Minnesota, USDA zone four. Okay. Maybe that's a little too high, but getting down into Florida, that's zone eight. So this thing works anywhere from, let's say, I don't know, Northern Illinois, all the way down to, you know, midway of Florida and, and you'll be fine. Chances are real good, though. It'll live above those zones and below those zones. But, you know, don't, don't scream at me if you try to plant in zone three and it doesn't work. Um, it's just that it's so, it's, this thing is, is really, really hardy. It's like you can't kill this plant. Now, here's the thing. When you do plant it and you're working with it, understand that this, the leaves are kind of hairy. And can, some of those hairs can get a little prickly depending on how young the leaf is. The younger the leaf, the more hairy it is. The older the leaf, the more those hairs get a little bit more prickly because they've dried out and get a little, you know, they get a little grizzled, right? And the issue is, is that you will, when you're working with this thing, find out if you have sensitivity to those hairs. For me, I'm fairly sensitive to this, to the hairs on this plant, not, not, the other stuff that I do with it, but I am sensitive to the hair. So I will break out in a rash on my forearms when I'm working with, you know, trying to cut it down and those, you know, leaves brush against the inside of my forearms, like, you know, like palm side, you know, where it's like 
where you don't tan because it's on the in, you know the inside of your arm. I get a pretty good rash. Goes away in a day. It's not that big of a deal, but it's annoying. So you'll find out. I trust me, you'll find out. But it's, nothing is going to send you to the hospital. So just be aware. Now, there's a thing that most people bring up with coffee. Oh, coffee has got alkaloids in it. Oh my God. Yeah, some, some do. And they're called uh, pyrolizidine alkaloids or PAs. And they are present. And this has caused a, you know, much crying and a great gnashing of teeth. So Symphytum uplandicum crossed with peregrinum is free from PAs. Now, I don't think that that's actually a balking, but I'm not sure. But a couple of people have said on several occasions, and it's throughout the literature that I used to research this entire thing, that the Symphytum uplandicum crossed with peregrinum is the comfrey that doesn't have these particular alkaloids involved inside of them. But this is coming from, you know, studies that were done years ago where they force fed rats way more comfrey than they, anything should ever eat for its, you know, any weight that it should eat for its body weight. There's like, you know, it's like if you were to sit around and eat a whole hay bale full of comfrey, yeah, you could screw your liver up pretty good. You don't, this stuff doesn't really taste all that good. <laughs> it just, it doesn't. You're not going to be, this is not something that you're just going to have a craving for where you go outside and you pull a whole bunch of leaves off the plant, bring it inside and make a, a Caesar salad out of it. That's just, that's not going to happen. So don't, don't worry about that one. But it is something to be said because again, these alkaloids have caused a great amount of crying and a even greater gnashing of teeth. So there is one that is free of those alkaloids, and that is that one that I just told you about, named uh, Symphytum uplandicum uh, crossed with peregrinum. Now, all the other stuff that I'm about to tell you is illegal, depending on the country that you're in. All right, so I'm going to treat this in a way that is sensitive to the fact that I have listeners in other countries. Assume everything that I'm about to say is something that you should not do. Okay. I don't want to get sued. I don't want to be taken to jail for telling people to use it as medicine or use it in this other way, or, you know, maybe it's good for ulcers so you can eat some of it. I'm not prescribing anything that I'm saying. I'm giving you the facts of what I have found out over the years and in re in the research that I've done. Okay. So, Let's get into the uses of comfrey. First up, medicinal. <laughs> exactly what I'm not supposed to say. So everything I'm about to say, you, you know what to do with it, okay? I'm not telling you to do this. It has been noted in literature that it's been used by human beings as medicine since at least 400 BC or BCE, depending on your sensibilities and your how easily you go into crying and a great gnashing of teeth. I don't honestly give a shit. I don't care, right? 400 BC, BCE, whatever, humans, as far as we know, first started using this thing. That's well over 2,000 years, ladies and gentlemen. I get, we're all still here. I, we're all alive, you know, so I'm guessing that the Greeks and Romans didn't kill themselves out when they used comfrey to stop Heavy bleeding. 
heavy bleeding. Yeah, the Ro Greek, what are the Greeks and Romans doing that they would discover that comfrey stopped heavy bleeding? Greeks and Romans had a tendency to go to war. <laughs> they had a tendency to make spears and, and, and get into trouble with other groups of people that caused, yeah, a, a, a great crying, gnashing of teeth and arrows flying and swords wielding and all kinds of shit. You know people are going to get hacked. They're going to get deep wounds. And they used comfrey to help staunch the bleeding. But there's way more that this stuff does. In wounds in general, Let's talk about wounds in general, the kind of wounds you're going to be looking at, right? Like surface laceration. Ah, you scraped against a, you know, a nail or, you know, you, you, you cut yourself, you know, not deep, but let's say you cut yourself chopping lettuce or whatever, all right? Bruises, everybody gets them. Broken bones, I hope you never suffer a broken bone, but comfrey is used for broken bones. How? It's a, like a freaking miracle. You wrap <laughs> where it is that you broke your bone, okay? After it's set, you go to the doctor, you do all those things. But if you want to help the bone set, if you can get to it, you can wrap it in comfrey leaves, which is ridiculous because if you ever seen a cast, yeah. Although the newer casts have a way that you can release that cast because they're like those strap-on things. So you can, if you can get to it and you can like rub some comfrey salve on it or something like that, which I'll talk about in a little bit, then it'll actually help. That's one of the reasons why another name for this plant is called knit bone. Other people called it bone knit. Other people just called it knit because it has a tendency to heal these wounds and it works for sprains. How is it getting to the bone? How is it getting to these things? It's just transdermal. The chemistry in the plant is going through your skin and into your muscle tissue, and it kind of stays resident, and it does the thing that it needs to do. That's why it works, right? You're not, you know, putting a laceration on your leg and stuffing it full of comfrey. That's not the way this works. You're not, you know, asking a doctor to make a preparation for injection. No, it's, this is all topical. You don't even have to eat it. Again, it doesn't taste very good, but... You don't even have to eat it. Just make a poultice out of it or something like that. And it helps. All these people say that it helps. I, and I'm including a link to an NCBI study that was performed years ago that talks about the efficacy of just how well this stuff works in various types of wound healing because this can also be used for rheumatoid arthritis, myalgia, and insect bites. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, like if you're out and you get stung by a bee or stung by a wasp and it hurts like a son of a bitch, or if you just get bit by a mosquito, if you got comfrey around, go grab a, you know, pinch a piece of leaf off, cr crunch it up in your fingers, make it where it's kind of a mash and shove it onto the bite or the sting. And it will help because it's magic. This plant is magic. Now, here's the thing. You're not a Roman or a Greek, so I doubt very seriously that you're going outside and, you know, throwing swords and stuff around. Which is why you're probably not suffering deep wounds. Okay, this is important to know. Okay, so now listen up. Deep wounds do occur sometimes. Like you cut yourself down to the bone, that's a deep wound. You cut your finger and you can see a tendon, that's a deep wound. All right, uh... Yeah, you run over your foot with a lawnmower, 
Comfrey's not helping you. Okay, in all of these cases, Comfrey is actually working against you. Why? Because it works so well at sealing and helping to your skin fuse itself back together when you're cut that if you do it on a deep wound, the surface will heal where you put comfrey, but the inside won't. And if you've got bacteria and crap and stuff stuck down there in that deep wound, you've got a problem. Because comfrey works so well at healing cuts, if it's a deep cut, this is not a good application for comfrey until after you go to the hospital, after you get stitches, no matter if they're deep stitches or surface stitches, whatever. Then, then after it's all cleaned and the doctor gives you the clean bill of health and you go on your happy ass way, go home and then that's when you put comfrey on the cut because it'll help heal all of this stuff. Got a bruise? Grab a big leaf and wrap it around. You smash it though. Bruise it up really good. Take a big old leaf of comfrey and just, I don't know if you got like some, like a ACE, you know, ankle bandage or something like that. You can keep it on with that or medical tape or, you know, I'm not against using duct tape. I'm just, just saying you can take the, a whole bunch of leaves and you can mash it up, like throw it a whole bunch through a, a food processor with a little bit of like distilled water or bottled water, you know, where it makes kind of a slurry. You know, but I mean, you want it thick though. If you just put in comfrey leaves without any, without any other liquid, it, you, nah, it, it's not helpful. So put in a little bit of liquid to where it gets into like a very thick paste. And then you can dump that onto paper towels and then put another paper towel on it, make a thin sheet of comfrey goo in between these two paper towels, throw it into the whole thing into a, like a Ziploc and freeze it. And once it's frozen, you take it out of the freezer if you've got like a bad, bad bruise or a cut, not a deep one again, remember, and then bend it around the wound and then wrap it. And that way you've got a compress and that the magic of the comfrey as it melts starts leaking out and getting onto your skin and it works its magic that way. You can take that mash if you want and you can squeeze it to where you've just got juice and you can mix it into like, I don't know, coconut oil, tallow, lard, something like that, and use it. But honestly, I don't think you have to go that far. I really don't. Most of the time, you just bruise up a leaf, wrap that son of a bitch around where it is you got a problem, wrap that so it doesn't fall off, leave it on there for a day, you're probably golden. And, you know, after a day, I think, you know, the magic is done. You know, it's gonna, it just starts to heal. And it heals faster than normal healing. But there's so much more that you can do with this plant. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at here. Biomass production. Yep, any idea how much sheer mass this plant produces? Well, I'm about to tell you. 2.2 kilograms per plant per year in one study and 5.5 kilograms in another. So a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. Do the math. Talk about like 12 pounds in a year from one plant, one plant. All right. You can harvest this thing between four and eight times a year, depending on your climate, depending on the plant strain. Is it balking four? Is it balking 14? Not a whole lot of difference, but that, you know, could be your client, you know, wherever your climate is, 
what kind of year you had, how much water you had. A lot of that's going to go into it. But yeah, I was harvesting my comfrey between four and five times a year. And literally, I would cut it off at ground level. Two weeks later, brand new leaves. I wait a few more weeks after that, I harvest it again. I could do that from like May until whenever. Like whenever it freezes is when it falls over and quote unquote dies. Of course, it doesn't really die, just the surface matter. The roots will always stay alive. That's why it's a forever plant. Now, we're talking when you get, if you want to go to scale, okay, and, and, and talk about like real mass production, if you got an acre and you plant the entire acre out with comfrey, and it's going to be there forever. So you've, you've basically turned this acre into a comfrey production unit forever, Laura. It's forever. Right? You're never getting rid of this stuff. I mean, I guess you could poison the living shit out of it eight or nine times and maybe, maybe, maybe it'll die. But remember, wherever you put it, it stays there forever. How much would an acre produce per year? Talking wet weight, not dry weight, wet weight, between 40 and 100 tons. I'll say it again, 40 and 100 tons. This plant is one of the top 10, if not top five, biomass production plants ever. And we'll get into why that could be important here in a minute. But first, what's the other thing that it does? So already we got medicine. We've got this huge amount of biomass, right? And you can say that you're sequestering carbon if you want to, I suppose, because you are. But what else does it do? It's what's called a bioaccumulator. Yep, bioaccumulation. All right, that's also known as a mineral dam. So what's a bioaccumulator? Well, let's just use the, the example of comfrey itself as what a bioaccumulator is. And there's many of them. Okay, first of all, generally speaking, they're perennial. But this plant, comfrey, has roots that go down to six and a half feet. That's two meters for all you guys living in, you know, not the United States, which is everywhere else. We're the only people, I think, that still use the imperial uh, system of measurement. Two meters, six foot down. Surface roots from most plants that are not prairie grasses do not, will never see six and a half feet down, right? While those roots are down there, what are they doing? They're mining for minerals and other things. Not only, um, that's one of the reasons why this thing becomes, after a couple of years of being in a place, it becomes drought tolerant because its roots are able to access water that none of the other roots can access because they're not that damn deep. But, as it's, those roots are down there and it's pulling all kinds of stuff out of the soil, different kinds of minerals, it's bringing it up to the leaves. And then when you cut those leaves and use them for all the things like medicine, the forage for animals and mulch and the other stuff that we'll get into. Well, when you do that, when it brings those up, when, when you put those into the usage, it's because it's got all this huge carcophony of soil minerals that you generally don't find in the first, you know, six, seven, even 10 inches of the topsoil of whatever land that you're, you're on, generally, especially in an urban area, because everything's been fertilized and poisoned to death. And you know, you name it, dude, I won't go into all that. 
But this plant's got the ability, it's got the chops to be able to get down deep and bring the deep stuff that's good up to the top and then you get nutrient cycling. And we'll get into a little bit of that. But first, first, what's, what's in there? What is in the leaves? What is the bio, what is being bioaccumulated? Nitrogen. 0.75% of these leaves are nitrogen, right? Phosphorus, 0.25% is phosphorus. Potassium, 0.2%. Comfrey leaves also contain, oh, this, the, here's, the break, here's the other breakdown. This, the, the percentages came from one research uh, paper. This, uh, the other stuff that I'm about to get into comes from another research paper. So let's break the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium down a little further. All right. For every kilogram of mass that you get from this plant, you're talking about 186 grams per kilogram of crude ash. 532 grams per kilogram of crude protein. 285 grams per kilogram of that is digestible protein, which makes it a good fodder for animals. 27 grams per kilogram of crude fat. 126 grams per kilogram of crude fiber, 10.8 grams per kilogram of calcium, 6.9 grams per kilogram of phosphorus, 64.9 grams per kilogram of potassium. You know what else this thing has? It has vi the, these following vitamins. A, B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, B9, B12. It's a high source of vitamin C and it contains vitamin E as well as these minerals, boron, chromium, cobalt, copper, iodine, iron, magnesium, manganese, selenium, sodium, and zinc. Have you heard about zinc and its relationship to fighting viruses over the past couple of years? I'll bet you have. I'll bet you have. In fact, in human immunology, there is a structure called zinc fingers that is specific to the human immune system. Hmm, I wonder why it's helpful in healing. I can't imagine, because the immune system is part of healing things like cuts and bruises. Your immune system is the same as your healing system. It's not two separate systems, ladies and gentlemen. So zinc is in there. And it's pulling all this stuff up from two meters down where no other plant can get it. It's going to be able to mine this treasure trove of elements and produce vitamins and nitrogen and potassium and all forever, Laura, forever. So, okay, well, great. It's a bioaccumulator. And we know it makes a lot of biomass. How do we use those two things together? We got biomass production and it accumulates all kinds of neat stuff. Mulch. Remember how I said, plant this plant wherever it is that you want this plant to be forever. I plant, I used to plant these plants in places that I also wanted to mulch. So I would, I had, I had a, like in Canyon, I had a lot of goji berries next to a fence. Because I wanted to, before we moved, or I figured out that we were going to have to move, I was wanting to put enough goji berries there to start a living fence. So I planted, along with all the goji berries, a bunch of comfrey. 
and I would cut that comfrey and I would leave it exactly where I cut it from. It's called chop and drop. And the, the leaves would then kind of dry out on the surface and, and trash, you know, trash bugs would come by and kind of like, you know, rip them to shreds. And then out, over time, they would just slowly, slowly break down into the soil, right? That's the chop and drop method. So if you had like, you know, I don't know, you planted a fruit tree, plant four comfrey plants around it. And you'll have all the mulch for that tree that you'll need throughout the year. And it's right there. You don't have to move it. You don't have to walk around. You don't have to go, oh, I got to go to the other side of the yard and go get some comfrey and then bring it back. And no, 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 no. Just plant it where you're going to use it. And that way you kill two birds with one stone, right? So you got a tree, you got bushes that you want to fertilize and, and mulch because the mulch of this plant is also the fertilizer. Again, you're... You're killing like four birds with one stone here, ladies and gentlemen. So just plant the plant where you also want the mulch to go. And if you, if you make too much, fine. We'll use it for something else like, you know, compost. But one of the other things that I used to do with this plant, <clears throat> I had a whole bed of it. And when it got kind of, you know, a little lanky in the summertime, it gets a little hot in Texas, I'd just mow it. I would literally get the lawnmower and I'd just mow it and mulch it in place that way. <laughs> Seriously, man. Now, if you put a bag on this thing, here's the problem. The leaves are, they can get fairly wet, right? So you can get some jamming action going. It happened a couple of times. It depends on how big the plants are, how much mass you're trying to get the, the uh, lawnmower to chop and throw into the bag. It can overwhelm. I never particularly had that problem because my plants didn't get to be six to eight feet tall, which I've heard this plant can do. I've just never seen it up close and personal. So I never had the jamming problem, but be aware because you're talking about wet stuff. If you've ever mowed your lawn when it's wet, just go slow. But that way you can bag it and it's all chopped up and macerated. And now, now we can start talking about using that for mulch except the problem is is that now that you've cut it all down or now that you've you've chopped it all up you can over apply this and you don't really want to do that you want to like if you're going to use this chopped up mash from your bagging mower just kind of sprinkle it around don't throw it in big thick you know packs because it'll sit there and compost in place but it will compost in in my opinion an anaerobic way well anaerobic means without oxygen and you can grow some some bugs and soil critters and you know bacteria and fungi fungi that you might not really find all that you might not appreciate it in your garden so if you're going to do it this way and you know molt stuff with the stuff out of your bag go lightly with it kind of sprinkle it around use your hands and, and break it up and you know don't pack it where it's all thick all right so keep that keep that in mind because if it's too thick you you might end up with problems but now we have mulch right we got bioaccumulation we've got this thing that produces a shit ton of mass well what happens if we do have too much we've we've mulched everything oh my god i've mulched it so many times i've and i've got so much of the stuff left over compost 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 why because of the nitrogen. Generally speaking, 
you want in good compost, whether you're using comfrey or not, you want a blend of dry, dead leaves and grass. And I mean, not fresh mown grass, because that's, there's still a lot of nitrogen, but that, when that grass dries and it's all golden and 100% dry, it's basically carbon at that point. You want 30 parts of carbon to one part of nitrogen. Generally speaking, rule of thumb, when it comes to any compost, you want a shit ton more dry carbon than you want green, leafy, you know, chopped up, gooey comfrey plants or, you know, grass. And you've got to mix those. Otherwise, you get problems. But let's just do this first. Because the comfrey is so high in nitrogen, that's why you can use it for this for the one part per 30 parts of carbon for the nitrogen component. Plus you get all what? You get all those vitamins and you get all the manganese and magnesium and iron and iodine and copper and cobalt and chromium and boron and zinc and sodium and selenium, by the way, which is essential for photosynthetic plants to have. You ain't got selenium, you're not photosynthesizing. If you don't have iron, you're not photosynthesizing. But again, you should not be using this in any compost pile at more than 10 to 1 of brown material to comfrey. Okay, I said 30 to 1, but that's when we're talking about pure carbon versus pure nitrogen. There's not pure nitrogen in comfrey, so you can kind of go 10 to 1. I've heard people use 15 to 1, you know, 15 parts dry leaves, one part chopped up comfrey, and mix it all together. Your compost is going to be badass. Now, here's the thing that happens when you let too much nitrogen get into your compost pile. I've composted since I was in my teenage years. And I had started noticing very early on that I was losing a lot of mass in my, like I would, I'd have start out with this great big mass. And by the time it turned to dirt, it was way smaller, way smaller. Well, you'd expect that, except that during the composting problem, before it turned to actual brown, crumbly, beautiful, nice smelling compost, I would notice that every time that I turned the compost pile, it would get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, if I was, if I did it right, my end product would, yes, it would have less, you know, it would look less in size. But what I learned was what was happening is that because I had too much nitrogen in my pile versus carbon, the activity of the microbial community that was doing the composting was composting so much that nitrogen was actually being released into the atmosphere and I was losing mass as, as nitrogen components like protein and whatnot like that of the composting material was being turned to gas and that gas was being released. That's the way to lose compost. That's the way to do a shit ton of work and get not a whole bunch of stuff on the other end. So that's why that 30 to 1 ratio is so important so that that nitrogen can be captured by the carbon. Why? Carbon as an element absolutely adores nitrogen as an element and they have a tendency to have a great big old hug fest and they don't like to let go of each other once they've combined. That's the important part. That's why you want so much carbon in there. Now, 
I, and again, I've had like these piles. I've seen piles lose uh, like 25% of their mass because I've been doing it for so long. That's that it's not. Yeah, that's not an exaggeration at all. And the other problem with too much nitrogen is that it can make the pile too hot. You want the, the compost to get hot enough to kill your weed seeds from like anything else that you put in there. But if it gets too hot, it starts killing the actual microbiology that's doing the composting and creating the heat in the first place. It's like their critters inside of this thing are a little too dumb to be able to regulate how much they're munching because once they go to town, they stay going to town and they will literally eat the son, this son of a bitch all up, create so much heat that they literally kill themselves. And when that happens, they've also used up all the oxygen in the pile and it gets anaerobic. Smells, when you, when you have to turn the pile at that point with a pitchfork and break it up, break it open and then like literally turn it upside down, it smells like a sewer. It's, it's not a good smell. And when you smell something that's sour, that tells you that you've got anaerobic conditions and you don't want anaerobic conditions ever. All right, so 30 parts carbon to one part nitrogen, or let's say 15 parts dry grass and lawn clippings and or like, like dried lawn clippings, uh, like raked up leaves to one part chopped up comfrey. And that should, that should keep you okay. Um, yeah, let's see here. Where, oh shoot, I just lost my place. Oh, adding biochar, because like I said, this stuff, you know, nitrogen loves carbon. Well, yeah, biochar is a little bit more recalcitrant. It's not exactly free and easy. However, I have noticed that biochar will, has a tendency to soak up everything, everything. It soaks up microbiology. It soaks up all kinds of minerals. It's, it, if it's like anywhere remotely aligned with moisture, which a compost pile should be kind of moist, it's like a it's like a straw and it just will suck this stuff up. So if you add biochar to your compost pile, I would not say that that replaces any part of the 30 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio. You should still act like you've got 30 parts of dry leaves, one part of chopped, you know, or or dried leaves, or well, 15 parts of dried leaves, one part of chopped comfrey, and then once you've got that, then you can mix in biochar. Just treat the biochar like it's not part of the carbon, okay? Just, I guarantee, that way it'll charge up your biochar if you're making any, and we won't get into how to do that, right? Just go look, for, or you can buy it. But it needs to be charged before you put it in the soil to do all of the magic that it does. This is a way to get that thing charged. Anyway, <clears throat> liquid fertilizer. You can make liquid fertilizer out of this stuff. How? Get a barrel. I don't care how big. You can get a five-gallon bucket or a 55-gallon oil drum. I don't care as long as the oil's been cleaned out of the drum. You fill the barrel with chopped leaves. You fill it with water, and then you cover it, and you wait three to six weeks. Your barrel should have a nozzle on the bottom of it and a screen on the inside so that you can drain the water off. It smells bad. And this isn't, this is a different kind of reason it smells bad is not because of anaerobic stuff. This is a completely different reason, but it smells terrible. You have to keep this covered, 
right? You want to keep it covered anyway so it doesn't evaporate the water, but you also, you don't want to piss your neighbors off too much. And you will piss your neighbors off. However, what does it give you? It gives you liquid that you can use just drench on your tomato, like drench the soil of whatever plants that you're growing, whether they're for human consumption or just pretty stuff that's in, you know, flowers and stuff that's in your flower bed. You can use it at full strength. You can cut it by half with water. I've seen people use one-tenth of the strength of what comes out, but you got you to gotta wait. It's three to six weeks. I'd wait on the, I'd probably, I wouldn't even look at it for three weeks. And I might even go four or five before I even before I even did this. And yes, I have done this because I had a setup for it. <sniffs> works, it works great because it's giving what? It's giving all those minerals and nutrients and whatnot a place to get cozy with water molecules. And that way, when you pour it onto your soil, it soaks and drenches in and those roots take it up and they're like, oh, look, boron, I need that. Oh, selenium, I need some of that. Iron, holy shit, I got to get some of that calcium too, brother. It's got everything it needs. And you did what? You produced it on site at your house. You didn't go to a store. And I'm not saying that this to do this to save money. It's just why even go through the trouble of driving down to Home Depot and going and getting chemical fertilizer when you can just make it yourself. Because if you want to do this in a different way and have concentrated fertilizer, Comfrey's got you covered. How do you do that? Well, you fill a barrel with a drain, of course, with chopped leaves. Then you, you mash it down and you keep filling it full of leaves until you just can't mash it down anymore. And then you put a massive rock or something to keep it compressed in the barrel with the drain. And what? You got to make sure that you can, you got to filter on that drain too, by the way, otherwise things get nasty. You put a rock on it to keep it compressed and then you cover it. This one, you walk away and a few weeks, let's say six, probably more like between six and eight, uh, a black slurry will have started descending. That's what you drain off. And it's a slurry. It's not, you didn't add any water to this one. And it's super high concentrated fertilizer and it smells terrible. And your neighbors will hate you if you're just doing this out in the open with, or, or, or keeping the barrel open and not respecting like, maybe I shouldn't open it because the wind is, is blowing in the exact direction of my neighbor's patio and they've got all their kids out there and they're having hot dogs. Maybe you should wait. That's how bad this stuff smells. When the cover's on, that's fine. But when you start messing with it, yeah, it's going to stink. So don't do that when your neighbors are, you know, having a barbecue. Anyway, so it smells bad. This stuff you use at one-tenth strength. So you got one part of this black slurry, 10 parts water. And then do the same thing that you did with the liquid fertilizer version of this. Depends on what you want to do, how much comfort you have, how you want to go. But once you've used up all the slurry, take the comfrey, mix it with dry leaves and grass and dry grass and make compost out of it. Or take the leaves, maybe even let them dry out. You can use that as mulch, right? Just again, not too thick because you cause that anaerobic thing to happen. And that's, that's no, no winnow. 
so like, yeah, like you could mix one gallon of slurry with 10 to 15 gallons of water. Yeah, one-tenth, one-fifteenth strength. This, it, it, like I said, it's got you covered for all the same reasons. Now, when does this stuff grow? It starts in early April. Okay, the, the leaves start coming out in early April, depending on your climate, of course. <clears throat> but it's, yeah, I, I, was, I was getting calm-free pretty much April, let's see, February, March. I was getting calm-free coming up out of the ground in late March where I was in Canyon, Texas. Now, this stuff can get like 35 centimeters high within weeks. It can grow depending on how much you water and how much nutrient availability the plant has. It can grow to be six feet tall. That's taller than I am by an inch. I'm, I'm like 5'11". I've never seen one that tall, but it, it happens. I've seen pictures. I just haven't been up close and personal. It flowers in late late May, but that doesn't halt leaf production, nor does it does it stop flowering after that first flowering sprig comes up. Bees love this plant. And this plant is good for bees, and bees are good for us. If you hate bees, I don't really know what to tell you because without bees, a lot of people on this planet would die. They're, they're the only ones that have figured out how to pollinate at scale that many flowers of that many different plants over that much area that quickly. All right, so you want to feed the bees. And this plant, this plant feeds the bees. It's only pure conjecture when I say that in the nectar of these flowers, these bees are finding a pharmacy filled with medicine that they probably need. By the way, I didn't mention, but the flowers are edible and they're gorgeous. You sprinkle a few on like a salad, probably gonna be, uh, probably gonna impress your friends on at a dinner party. I wouldn't eat a whole bunch of them because they have a tendency to be just a little bit like cucumbery, vegetative, but they are sweet at first. But if you eat, like I've eaten a whole handful of them before and I'm like, yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. But like one or two, maybe on top of a steak, just for like, you know, floral, like a little floral arrangement, thing looks beautiful. Now, what does it require? They say full sun. <laughs> not, not in Canyon. It liked full sun in the morning, but after like 10 o'clock, uh, 11 o'clock and then getting into the, like, you know, well, 10, like, uh, for 12 o'clock in April, it was fine. And getting into, uh, April, May, June. Yeah. Then it starts going down to like 10 o'clock after 10 o'clock, your leaves start wilting. If you have this thing, if you live in like Lubbock, Texas, or, or like zone six, a zone six B, uh, or zone seven, and you've got this out in the middle of a field and it gets sunlight all day long, that will kill this plant. It says full sun, but what it really wants is a shit ton of full sun in the morning and dappled shade in the afternoon, at noon and after. That's what it wants. You find places that, that do that, you're gonna, these plants are gonna love you. <clears throat> just, I'm just saying, this is from direct experience with this plant. I've never used it in a place that like it was 75 degrees at the hottest time in summer. I've, you know, and it was full sun. Maybe that, maybe those plants work better. 
But I know that in Lubbock, Texas, and in Canyon, Texas, which is about 135 miles north of Lubbock, yeah, full sun, no, it's a, it's, it's definitely a no-go. So you're going to need some good shade uh, depending where you're at. It needs irrigation, for especially the first year, maybe first couple of years. But it will never die due to drought unless you plant it and never water it, right? And then you get a drought. No, that root is going to die in the ground. We'll talk about propagation here in a sec. But that uh, you, you, once it's established, it won't die because of drought. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be pretty. It's going to look like crap. And all the top leaves, if the drought's so bad, that plant's going to go into dormancy. You're going to think it died. But let's say it goes through winter and then all of a sudden it rains in the spring, that plant's coming back. You cannot kill this plant with drought unless it's like a 25-year drought or something like that. But nobody ever sees that. It's soil adaptable. So loam, sand, clay, any combination of all of them, it does not care. It also doesn't really give a shit about the pH of your soil, otherwise known as how acid your soil is or how basic your soil is. My soil in Canyon, Texas was 8.4 of a pH. Highly alkaline. Highly, highly alkaline. To the point that a lot of other shit didn't want to grow. Comfrey, it's like a honey badger. It didn't care. Now, propagation. It's easy. You can get cuttings from a root crown and plant that. Just cover it with, just dig a hole like in a root crown. Let's see. About like you can get, I've seen root crowns. I used to take root crowns. Like I would chop the entire crown of, like I'd dig the plant up. I would chop the entire top of the plant off. I'd put the root part back into the ground, cover it with soil, boom, new plant within weeks. I'd take the top of the plant that I cut off and I would cut it into like 32 little individual pieces. That's the root crown. It's the very crown, not the leaves. It's like where the leaves connect to the roots. That area, you chop that off, that's the crown. And then you can divide that up. And I would divide it up into like, you know, about the size of the first knuckle of my thumb. And then bury it, cover it, water it, make sure it doesn't dry out. And in two or three weeks, I had a brand new spanking comfrey plant that's set in roots. That's how easy it is to propagate this plant. Once you have one of these, you should never have to order another one unless you move and don't take any of the shit with you, right? You can also take root cuttings, the part of the, the plant that after I chopped off the crown and I put back in the soil, I didn't have to do that. And I didn't for a good friend of mine, which I'll mention here in a second. I would take the whole thing. I'd chop off the crown and do the root crown thing. And then I'd chop the roots up into like one or two inch pieces. And then I'd bury those. Except instead of a couple of weeks, sometimes I would wait four, sometimes six, depending on the time of year that I planted. I, it could be like, you know, there was a couple that I didn't see for 12 weeks. But that's the difference between planting a root cutting from a root crown cutting or a below the ground or below the root crown root cutting. There is a difference. Generally speaking, that it comes up with the exact same plant. It just takes longer for one than it does the other one. So now that I've mentioned all these badass things that you can do with comfrey, 
it heals. You make compost out of it. You make liquid fertilizer out of it. You can, you like, you mulch with it. You, it never dies. It doesn't seed. So it, at least if you get the balking 14 or balking four, right? It, it won't, it's not invasive. It's, it's forever, wherever you put it, it's drought tolerant and it produces a shit ton of mass. And all of that mass can do all the things that I've just mentioned. It's a wonderful plant. Where do you get it? You get your comfrey from my good friend, Shishi21M at Noster. That's at Shishi21M. That's S-H-I-S-H-I-21M as in 21 million on Noster. You can also reach him if you're not on Noster at Shishi21M at protonmail.com. That's Shishi21M at protonmail.com. He has both Bocking 14 and Bocking 4 varieties. That Bocking 4 variety that he's now propagating, he got that from me. We were doing a test to see if I could sell him some comfrey with Lightning Network, and it worked. I sold him 100 bucks worth of comfrey. I, sold, I gave him 100 root cuttings that I was able to get off of a single one of my plants right? And he's got them. He's got the genetics that I left behind back in Canyon, Texas. So if you want comfrey and you want this plant, get it from Shishi because he takes lightning networks. He, I mean, he takes Satoshi's via the lightning network. He's much more responsive if you get to him on Noster, but if you're not, Shishi21M at protonmail.com. He has both Bocking 14 and Bocking 4 that came from me. He will sell you one full root for $20. He will send you root cuttings for $1 each. You pay the shipping. You got to work this out with Shishi as to where to deliver, how much you want. Do you want Bocking 14, Bocking 4? I suggest getting both. I mean, why not? One of each. I forgot to mention that Bocking 4 is pretty good for human uses and med- the more medicine-y kind of and compost-y kind of things. Bocking 14 is when you feed it to rabbits and have it as part of your animal's diet. Not all of your animal's diet, part of your animal's diet, and you can do your own research as to how much to feed animals. Yes, you will find the gnashing te- of teeth and the crying and the whining about how it kills everything, but you'll also find... And I've got three links that I'm going to send that I'm going to put in my show notes for this show of the of the three top three research things that I want to send people to. One of them is highly detailed, highly scientific. You may hate it. Two of them are more written for layman's between the three. You'll find all you need to find out. And if you want to find out more about how to feed it to animals and how much it's out there. Okay, just you're going to have to. You're going to have to wander through the crying and the gnashing of teeth. But again, get your comfrey from at Shishi21M on Noster, Shishi21M at ProtonMail.com. Shishi and I have got a deal. Yes, I'm getting a cut of everything he sells. I want to help Shishi sell the comfrey I sold him because that would be a perfect circle. Let's run the numbers.
doggy. I got oil up 1.56%. Uh, that was West, Te- that is actually West Texas Intermediate, that for $71.13 a barrel. Brent North Sea likewise up one and a half points to 75.28. Natural gas swinging for the fences. Just a hair below five full percent points to the upside, $2.37 a thousand. And we got gasoline up one and a half to $2.46 a gallon. Gold up scant 0.05% to $2,020.70. Silver up almost a half to $24.26. Platinum is up a third. Copper is up almost a half and palladium is up two thirds of a point. Ag is pretty much in the green today. The biggest winner, wow, wheat. 4.3% to the upside, followed by coffee, 2.93% to the upside. Biggest loser is rice, 1% down. I got live cattle up 0.08. Lean hogs up two and a half points. Wow. Feeder cattle are up 0.83%. Dow, 0.12% to the upside. S&P is up 0.3. NASDAQ up a half. And S&P mini is up three quarters of a point. Real money is at $27,402.20. That's after 188,000 BTC been sent in the last 24 hours. I got uh, 0.34 BTC as the average transaction value. Median transaction value is 14 cents or 0.00054 BTC. Yeah, that 14 cents, 15 cents, ordinals. That's how you know they're ordinals. Uh, nine minutes and 28 seconds for block times. That's kind of low. I got uh, 0.55 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 83.74 taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. Woo, 7.74% increase in hash rate puts us just below 400 to 398.23 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator is Dogecoin, 7.2 United States pennies. I looks like we're having a $530.9 billion market cap. That's 3.91% of gold's market cap. You can get three 13.5 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin. Uh, looks like there is $145.7 million of capacity in the Lightning Network. We got, ooh, what do we, what do we have? Where's our channels? Oh, 72,262 payment channels that we know about. difficulty increase coming up May 18th. So we had been showing a decrease in the estimated difficulty change. Now we've swung to the upside. Why? Well, probably because there's a shit ton of blocks. 180, no, 192 blocks are waiting to clear and they are carrying 252,000 unconfirmed transactions. Uh, Low priority transaction fees are 49 Satoshis per V-byte and 91 Satoshis per V-byte for high priority fee. I am number 13 on Fountain Charts. Uh, it didn't work, guys. It didn't work. I wasn't able to get back into the top five. I wasn't even able to get back into the top 10. Help me change that. I really want to displace uh, Fun Fact Friday with Leela and David. I also want to be ahead of Millennial Media Offensive, The Lotus Effect. The Watchman Privacy Report, Curry and the Keeper, and Linux Unplugged. Right now, I am lowly number 13. But, but, I do got boostograms. Let's see if I can get to them. If, if Fountain will work with me. You working with me? It's probably not going to work with me. I might just go ahead and 
pick up my phone. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's going to crap out on me. God dang it, Fountain. Their web app is, uh, it can get dicey at times as to whether or not it wants to show me what I want it to show me. But luckily, luckily, I've got my trusty old phone right here. And once I can finally get it to a point where I can get my own show up, I can tell you the boostograms. All right, here we go. Now, from Dale Jr. with 20,000 sats, Bala says, thanks. No, Dale Jr., thank you. Uh, Bay Nerds has this message, and he's my guy that sells you maple syrup and his sister, Sarah's Soaps. Message from customer for your metrics. I have to admit that I probably pulled the trigger on buying from you, mostly because you accept Bitcoin. But that's not a bad thing as a motivator. I like to support using Bitcoin in a circular economy. The fact that my wife loves homemade soap and real maple syrup definitely sealed the deal as soon as I heard about it. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. That was with a 3,001 sats. So you guys are kind of doing a combination. I like that. I want maple syrup. I want your product. Oh, and you take Bitcoin through the lightning network. That makes it even easier. Greasing the skids, greasing the skids. I got Joseph Joey Joe with 3000 says, looking forward to the Comfrey episode. Do well. You just got it. Nick underscore dose with 2345 says, I like your read from holistic management about mineral, paper, and solar as the three forms of money. Appreciate the variety of subjects you cover. Cheers. And I got one from Dub Bravco with a thousand sats, but that one I'm not going to read uh, because I don't know if he wants me to read it or not. Uh, if he does, dude, you let me know and I'll read it uh, next show. Uh, Yegro with a 725 says, brother, Oh, wait, no, no, I will read Dubrovko. I'm not going to read Yegro. Dubrovko says, per Alan Savory, it is refreshing, refreshing to see someone learn from their mistakes, especially one this big. It is also a person that has to starkly change direction. That is the most dedicated to the ideal, their ideals. Someone should tell the United States Chamber of Commerce that the purpose of the system is what it does, not what it claims to do. Stafford Beer. I don't know who that is. Uh, regarding the feds, working with the Ukrainian feds, Foucault's boomerang is in full effect. Corey Dr. Rowe had a great interview on Could It Happen Here that explained it well. And last up is God's death with grassy ass. He paid 370 Satoshis to say grassy ass. Okay. I, th I think he's saying thank you. Just in a, in a different way that none of us know about. Now, <clears throat> on to the news. U.S. Senators introduced bill requiring reports on El Salvador's Bitcoin adoption, BTC Casey for Bitcoin Magazine. A group of United States Senators have introduced yet another bill requiring reports on the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador. The Accountability for Cryptocurrency in El Salvador Act, introduced by Senator James Reich, Senator Bob Menendez, and Senator Bill Cassidy, require the Secretary of State, in coordination with other relevant federal departments and agencies, to submit a report on the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador. The report must include an assessment of the regulatory framework in El Salvador and the potential impact of Bitcoin adoption on macroeconomic stability, democratic governance, and the flow of remittances from the United States to El Salvador. 
I'm not reading anything else in this report. That's all you need to know. What business is it of any countries other than El Salvador, what they do? What, what are we going to do? Are we going to send in the Marines to El Salvador to do what? Tell, take their nodes, look for the wallets on their phone. Like El Salvador is going to do what to the United States? Ah, prove the point of Bitcoin. That's why, and that's the only reason why these ridiculous bills that want accountability of Bitcoin in El Salvador. It's the most, the most ludicrous freaking name. Well, you want accountability of what? The protocol of Bitcoin? Or do you want account, accountability of a country that you've gotten no business being in? Their accountability for using Bitcoin? What's the accountability here? Dude, we cannot stop keeping our nose in people, other people's business. And it's sad and it needs to end. But I want to tell you about this one. Ethereum network suffers finality issues. Here's what that means. Pedro Salimano with this one from decrypt.co. Ethereum, the world's second largest blockchain by cryptocurrency market cap, suffered a technical issue on Friday, causing its network to halt finalizing blocks for more than an hour. Finality takes roughly 15 minutes and refers to the guarantee that a block cannot be altered or removed from the blockchain without burning at least 33% of the total staked ETH, according to the Ethereum Foundation. The network lost finality for roughly an hour midday Friday in what appears to be the second issue of its kind in 24 hours. On Thursday, blocks were being proposed but not validated during a 25-minute window on Thursday. The cause of these outages still remain unclear which has spurred many in the crypto community to take to social media to discuss and try to figure out what went wrong. Do you need to know anything else? This thing is, this chain, you don't want to have anything to do with Ethereum. This is par for the course. If you've been around this space for any length of time and your head is not buried in the sand and understand the truth of what Ethereum really is, a great big massive pump and dump, you will have seen issues like this before and issues that have nothing to do with this kind of thing that are still bad issues ever since the inception of this mediocre, crappy chain. Everything about this is wrong. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Nut miner, mine those nuts. Proof-of-work-based cashew faucet. Quote, Nutminer is a difficulty-adjusted proof-of-work-based cashew faucet that emits a constant rate of tokens no matter how many people use it. This is from No Bullshit Bitcoin, uh, aka uh, NoBSBitcoin.com. Quote, The miner runs in your browser and produces hashes that are submitted to the back end. The more people use it, the higher the difficulty, just like with Bitcoin mining. If the proof of work matches the difficulty, you get an e-cash nut, which you can cash out on Lightning. You can think of it as a proof of concept of what an e-cash based mining pool would look like. Bitcoin miners do not need to reveal their mining rewards to the pool. 
Instead, they can accumulate e-cash representing their reward and cash out anonymously, Callie wrote. Try it out. Crack some nuts over there at nutminer.semisol.dev. That's nutminer.semisol.dev. Now, I tried it, and it basically ate 20% of my computer's resources as far as CPU instantly. And I was nowhere close, nowhere close to matching the difficulty. So use at your own risk, but it runs in your browser. You don't need to set up anything. You don't need a node. You don't need anything. You just go to nutminer.semisol.dev and the thing starts running and it will give you a little bit of metrics. And then you can gauge and see if your computer is hot shit enough to be able to run this and crack a nut. Otherwise, we got fold. Fold and El Salvador this time. Fold Bitcoin Rewards app announces expansion into El Salvador, spearheading Latin American operations. Bitcoin reward company Fold has announced its expansion into El Salvador, establishing a new office that will serve as its base for operations in Latin America. Fold, known for introducing the world's first Bitcoin rewards visa debit card to the United States market in 2020, aims to make Bitcoin accessible and easy for users worldwide. Oh, Fold CEO Will Reeves expressed enthusiasm about the move in a press release shared with Bitcoin Magazine stating, quote, as a country that has embraced Bitcoin and has been a pioneer in adopting new monetary technology, we believe that El Salvador is the perfect place for Fold to expand its presence in Latin America. Reeves sees El Salvador as an ideal location due to the country's positive stance on Bitcoin and its efforts to build new capital markets. According to the release, Fold's expansion will bring valuable solutions to customers and businesses in the region through its rewards program and embedded Bitcoin infrastructure. The company stated it plans to announce partnerships with major players in Latin America soon. Thank God. According to the release, to date, Fold's Bitcoin rewards infrastructure has processed over $1 billion US in volume, highlighting its growing success and impact. So there you go. Fold moving down to El Salvador has plans to infect Latin America later. And I love Fold. I really do. I use Fold. It's it's a great service. And I'm happy that they're going to concentrate first and foremost in Central America. Instead of, you know, go, oh, we got to find something different. No, man, Central America. Concentrate your energies on Central America. That's Costa Rica. You know, that's uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, those places south of Mexico. Anything south of Mexico and north of South America is Central America. There's like seven countries there. Go get them. That's all I got to say. Snort version 0.1.8 Wallet Connect, trending notes and more. So this is an update to what Snort's been doing. Added to meal language support. Quoted notes are rendered embedded. Multi-account support for subscribers. Zapper key loading, processing in background to speed up profile loading. Export keys page added to settings. NIP94 support for rendering quoted file metadata events. Interactions cache, you know, like uh, zaps, likes, reports for a better user experience. Uh, Full screen image and video previews in modal. Rebroadcast own events dialog. Noster wallet connect support. Cashew token parsing preview with redeem link and trending notes 
slash people tabs added to search page. So there you go. Snort, not lying down on the job. Uh, U.S. strips Ethereum developer Virgil Griffith of export privileges for 10 years. Amanka Nawahacha is writing this one for Cointelegraph. The United States Department of Commerce has imposed a 10-year export privilege ban on Virgil Griffith, the Ethereum developer that's serving a five-year prison sentence. The ban restricts him from enjoying export privileges until April the 12th, 2032. The export privilege ban affects his ability to participate in international trade and business. On April the 12th, 2022, he was convicted in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of, you guessed it, New York, for breaching the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Griffith was found guilty of unauthorized export for services to North Korea and circumventing U.S. sanctions imposed on the country. So, as a private citizen of the United States, he can't participate in international trade or business until five years hence. Wow. You know, honestly, that I, he might be an Ethereum developer, but dude, talk about freaking overreach. I just, it, uh, whatever, whatever. All right, now I had this one on the list, as I told you before, but we are running way, way long. I might save this one for tomorrow, but yeah, $31 trillion in debt. Eh, that ain't nothing to sneeze at. That's going to do it for the Afternoon Roundup. All right, starting the week out with Dad Says Jokes. How do you put a baby astronaut to sleep? You rock it. That's, I guess that one is for Elon Musk, who's doing weird and wonderful, well, wonderful. Uh, now cringe, cringe things. Did you see his CEO that he hired? Oh my God. I don't even want to talk about that one. But go off into this week. Get your comfrey from shishi21m at protonmail.com at shishi21m on Noster. He'll sell you comfrey. If you buy the Bocking 4 comfrey, that's the stuff that I propagated. All of those genetics I had my hands on, right? So if you want a, if you want a little piece of me, get the Bocking 4 variety. It's good for the medicine part. It's good for everything, and especially the compost and whatnot. But I highly recommend that you get one of each. I highly recommend that you get Bocking 14 as well as Bocking 4. Shishi21m at protonmail.com has both of them. That's S-H-I-S-H-I-21m at protonmail.com. And I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and... And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.